But the fact that she spoke up and spoke out and then told us as children that story, I think was a way of her teaching us, you know, you need to speak out against bias and hatred whenever you see it, because that will stop it. Today's episode is sponsored by HEB Curbside and Delivery. When life throws you a loop, HEB Curbside and Delivery is here to help. We shop how you shop, so you get exactly what you want. Order today at HEB.com. HEB Curbside and Delivery, it's never been easier to shop HEB. Welcome to this episode of Our Voices Matter podcast. We've got some really important things to talk about today. Um, As you've been watching the headlines, you know that there has been a spate of anti-Semitism and just outright hate that is um, overtaking our country, it feels like. And um, one of the people who is sitting here with me today who has been working on this issue for at least the last 20 years um, is Dina Marks, the Senior Associate Director of the Anti-Defamation League here in Houston. Uh, Dina and I got to know each other working in television at KPRC. And uh, 20 years ago, you joined ADL. And um, so, Dina, I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, I wish we didn't have to talk about this particular subject matter, but it's so important that we do. Um, what, why did you join ADL? Why did you want to work there? What resonated with you? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Mm. <laughs> my parents made me want to join ADL. Both my parents were involved in the civil rights movement. And as we come up on Martin Luther King's birthday and MLK Day, mm. um, I love to talk about my parents because my mother worked with Dr. King to help integrate the schools in Houston. And I just wanted to do something to make a difference in that realm. I saw what they had done and I was extremely proud of them. And so I, I, that's why I joined ADL. That's why I became an ADL employee. And so over the last 20 years, what would you say you have witnessed in terms of anti-Semitism and hate in terms of the ebb and flow, if you will? Well, ebb and flow is a good term. It's a good phrase to describe how hate is. Hate ebbs and flows. It comes in waves. I've noticed um, when I first started working at ADL, we were in a pretty bad time. Um, And then it sort of waned a little bit. And now we're in a, a... high wave of hate, which I think is probably the worst that I've ever seen. It's not to say it's not going to go back down. I think it will. I think we have to believe that it will. But it does ebb and flow. And right now we're in a bad time. Why do you think we are in this where we are right now? I, I, I can't put my finger on any one thing exactly. But um, it seems like uh when somebody does something hateful, and a lot of people have been acting out with their hate, doing violent acts with their hate. Um, We have ways to promote hate that we didn't have before, social media, the internet, and so forth. When people start seeing other people do something with that hatred, acting on that hatred, and they're not consequences for it, or they're getting approval from others online or in social media or whatever, then I think they feel emboldened and empowered and it starts to grow. And I think we have more vehicles for spreading hate now than we have ever had before. So how has that impacted the way that organizations like ADL go about 
uh, doing their work, um, trying to spread the message that this is not the way to live. How do you, how has it changed? We, we try to use some of the same vehicles that are used by the haters. Mm -hmm. But then there are other uh, things we do where we try to educate the general public that this sort of thing is going on. We put out a report several months ago on how um, 4chan and 8chan and Gab were being used by haters to spread the message that hate is something that you need to act on. So for instance, the, the shooter at Christchurch, yeah. New Zealand, who shot the two mosques and killed 51 people, he posted all this stuff. And um, encouraged other people to do the same thing. So, you know, in this country we have the First Amendment, so we, we, we're not about censorship, but we're about fighting bad speech with good speech, and so we try to educate the public as much as possible to uh, understand what's going on and to respond to it. Um, because if, if we respond to hate, if we make hate a bad thing, it's not going to continue. So that's part of what we do. Um, some of the other things that we do is we call on social media platforms to be responsible. We don't talk about censorship, but we talk about be responsible, enforce your policies. If you see something hateful online and that's against your policy, then address it. What kind of response are you getting from social media platforms? Pretty good response. We have a center on technology and society that's um, in the Silicon Valley, and they work with social media platforms and with companies to try to address these situations. We don't always get everything we ask for, but at least they are interested in working with us and they are responsive. What more would you like to see um, social media companies do uh, beyond what they're already doing? just to enforce their pol to have strong policies against hateful language mm -hmm. and to enforce those policies. One of the problems, though, is that when those policies are enforced, there's so many channels out there that someone will go to another channel. So it's not just the companies we are working with or the platforms we are working with. We wish that all social media platforms would have policies that would combat hate and would enforce those policies. What kinds of calls are you getting now um, at the ADL? Um, we're getting we're getting not so much calls about anti-Semitism in our region, but other types of hatred, um, vandalism connected with hatred. Um, people do report social media posts that they see. Um, we get a lot of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, we all also have to vet everything that we get. So sometimes somebody thinks that they're being discriminated against when they're really not. Um, and so um, not every call or every report of a hateful incident is going to be something that we're going to be able to deal with. But we're getting things across the board, a lot of social media, a lot of vandalism, um, harassment, some bullying in the school, some children are being targeted. Um, and that's the kind of thing that we deal with pretty much on a day-to-day -day basis. You mentioned schools. One of the um, initiatives that, um, that you have is called No Place for Hate. Um, share with our audience a little bit about what that is and the impact that it's having uh, on our young people. 
Well, fortunately, that's a positive thing and good. something good we yeah. could talk about. Yeah. The No Place for Hate initiative is in hundreds of schools in our region. And the region that I work in, ADL Southwest region, covers everything from El Paso to Beaumont in Texas and all points south. So except for Austin, we have an Austin region because that's where the seat of Texas government is. But um, so in our region, we have hundreds of schools who are part of the No Place for Hate initiative. And what they do is they apply to be a No Place for Hate campus. And then they have to, to check a checklist of activities that they do. And among those activities are three activities that are anti-bias activities. They sign a resolution of respect, which they are supposed to hang in the school. These are school-wide activities. They have to be done by the entire school. And they have to be done throughout the year. And then once they have finished those activities. They submit everything. It's all done online. And then we have a committee that reviews what's been submitted. And if approved, they become a no place for hate campus. And it's not something that's a permanent thing. It's something that they have to renew every year because you have to continually fight hate. Um, and um, once they have become a no place for hate campus, they get a banner that's like a championship banner that they can hang in the school. Each banner has five stars on it, and every year they can get a new star. This is the 20th year coming up of No Place for Hate, so we're very happy about that because it's continued to survive and thrive. And sometimes it's so successful and so popular in the schools that if a student moves to a new school, or let's say an educator moves to a new school, they try to initiate it in that new school because they feel like it has created an environment in the school that allows for students to feel welcome and safe and secure. And that's really the best learning environment for kids to have. I love that. What a fabulous program. So um, the, if I'm understanding the way it works, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if something happens, a, 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 an activity in a school where someone is bullied or there's a hateful act that takes place on one of these campuses, the school has already put in place things that they would do to respond to it or to, tell me how that when, when something actually happens on a campus on a no place, on a for, no hate. place for hate campus uh, sometimes the schools have something in place to respond and sometimes they don't often they will reach out to us for help because we have lots of resources certainly we have lots of resources online at adl.org that people can look for um, but it's not always the case that they have something in place to deal with it uh, but they are are better equipped, students are better equipped to handle situations like this because they've been through the No Place for Hate initiative in the program. Um, it's not to say that it's a cure-all. Right. It's not a cure-all. It's not a panacea. It's a first step. You have to start, like you were just saying at the beginning of this conversation, you have to start the conversation. Otherwise, there's no way that you can combat it. Exactly. And so it's a start of a conversation. But I feel like a No Place for Hate campus is much better equipped to deal with something that happens on campus. When it than, does arise. Right. Yeah. And sometimes, and you'll hear students, one of the things we do, that's connected with No Place for Hate is we have a No Place for Hate luncheon every year where we give an award to educators, the Walter Case Educator Excellence Award. And these are educators from No Place for Hate campuses for the most part. And one of the things that I do in my job is I will go help 
interview educators and produce a video on these educators. And in the course of doing these videos, I often find out that the students on those campuses will stand up for one another in situations. Mm -hmm. So it almost goes without saying that that happens on campuses where the educators are, are really good at sponsoring No Place mm -hmm. for Hate mm -hmm. and where the students are really involved in No Place for Hate. They will tell me a lot about seeing students stand up for each other in the hallway or saying, that's not right. Don't say that, that sort of thing. I love that. It's really going to, I think, it, it's in the hands of our young people. I mean, I think, you know, people of our generation and generations, you know, between us and, and the young people who are really coming up and going coming into adulthood now, um, they're the ones that are going to have to have to take the situations that have been created and and make it better, do something to um, get us out of this constant cycle. As you say, it ebbs and flows, but we have to have hope. And um, when I hear about uh, initiatives like No Place for Hate, that gives me hope as, you know, as, a, as an adult who, who kind of looks at our generation and says, gosh, you know, we, we should be doing better. We, we have to be doing better. And maybe it's the young people who need to set an example for us. As, as we were talking before we started taping, um, today's young people have grown up in a diverse world and they seem to embrace diversity much more than the older generation. Would you, would you agree? I agree. Absolutely. And that gives me a lot of hope. Certainly no place for hate gives me hope. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact that and Houston is a great example. The fact that we live in a much more diverse world, a much more global world, it's kind of a double-edged sword because as I was talking about social media and the way that information is, is disseminated now, um, that can help hate spread, but it can also help love spread. And certainly love is the antidote to hate. And um, I think that the, the, the kids I've seen in Houston certainly are more comfortable with diversity because they've just grown up with it. They have no choice. Right which nobody really has a choice. We all have to accept diversity because this is a much more diverse, much more global world, and it's just the way that things it's are. It's just the way it is. That's not going to change. No, and it makes our world so much richer. If you think about Houston and what a successful, wonderful city Houston is for the most part, certainly we have our problems. But the diversity of the city has made it such a, a welcoming place for people. It's one of our greatest strengths. It yeah. is. Yeah. It is the greatest strength, I think, of Houston. It's one of the reasons why I'm proud to be a native Houstonian. But I think that in Houston, people embrace diversity better than they do sometimes in other parts of the country. And we are certainly... We're not always perfect, but we're certainly an example of how diversity can bring success and, and, and bring power mm -hmm. and, and enrich in so many different ways, right. not just monetarily, but just in experience. Exactly. You talked at the beginning uh, a little bit about um, growing up with parents who worked with Dr. King. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that and what kind of an impact that had on you as a young person witnessing your parents roll up their sleeves and be involved in the civil rights movement. Well, my parents were always the type of parents, they were very socially active. 
um, and they would bring us along to all the things that they would do. So they were great role models because we saw them act to improve the community. And um, and then they would put us to work helping them. What do you remember doing at, at a young age? Do you, anything oh, come to mind? Oh, gosh, all kinds of things. Um, one of the things we did was uh, put... Uh, American flags on sticks for a rally that my father was in advertising and my father was doing a rally for one of the parties. I, I won't say which party, but he was doing, you know, it was a campaign rally that was in the Astrodome. And we were supposed to put the flags on the sticks, glue the flags on the sticks, which was a whole nother thing in itself, the glue. <laughs> but we were, you know, we went to the rally and we could see what we had done, everybody waving our flags yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, we went, one of the, one of my friends, um, the way I got into television in Houston was um, through Melanie Lawson because we spent time together as children. My um, parent, my mother and father were working with Bill Lawson, Reverend Lawson, on integration and on civil rights movement. And so we used to go to each other's homes and play with each other and that sort of thing. So when I wanted to move to Houston in television, I called Melanie and I said... And Melanie's an anchor at the ABC station yeah. here in Houston, ABC 13. So. Right. I just think everybody knows right. Melanie. For those of you not in Houston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I said, Melanie, um, I'm looking to move back to Houston. Is there anything open at Channel 3? And she said, no, not, I don't think so, but you can come visit me. And so I went and visited her. I spoke to the executive producer and uh, the next day two producers resigned. So I got a job <laughs> as a producer. Timing is everything. Timing right? is everything. <laughs> but, you know, I remember working, you know, playing with uh, Reverend Lawson's children as a child. And um, my father also uh, worked on the campaign, the political campaign for Hattie Mae White, who was the first African-American member of the Houston School Board, and we used to go over to her house, and we would play with their children, and, you know, whatever we needed to do, uh, we would do with them, um, you know, other political activism things. My mom was one of the founders of KPFT here, the Pacifica Radio, which is a public radio station here, and um, that was something that was done in our home and outside of our home. We used to go over to Pacifica and help paint the walls, and, you know, so you were really in, in the trenches there with your parents. We were in the trenches. And I want to say, though, one of the fun things about the work that my mom did with Dr. King is sometimes I would answer the phone and it would be Dr. King's assistant. And she would say, can you hold for Dr. King? And I'd say, yes, let me get my mother. I never spoke to him myself, but I would, always, I would give wow. my mother the phone. Or uh, Harry Belafonte was here for a concert that they brought Dr. King and Harry Belafonte for. And one time I answered the phone when he called, and that was exciting because I recognized his voice immediately. Yeah, he's, he's got a recognizable yeah. voice for yeah. sure. Yeah. He didn't so, have to say who it was. No, he didn't have to. <laughs> he did say who it was, but I knew who it was immediately. Wow. What great memories you yeah. must have. That's amazing. Um, so beyond your parents modeling, doing what they did and fighting for civil rights, what did they say to you as a young person when, um, you would, if you would, if you saw someone being discriminated against, or if you saw something hateful, what did your parents tell you? I I have a great story about my mother. (laughs) So I was a Girl Scout. And I wanted to go to Girl Scout camp. And there were two camps in the Houston area. Um, One was Camp Arnold, which was where all my friends were going. And the other one was Camp Robinwood. Camp Robinwood was integrated. Camp Arnold wasn't. 
I told my mom, I want to go to Girl Scout camp and I want to go to Camp Arnold. So she looked into it. She looked into both camps and she said, no, you're going to Camp Robinwood. I said, why? I was not happy. She said, because Camp Robinwood is integrated and Camp Arnold isn't. I want you going to Camp Robinwood. And that, to me, she didn't really have to tell me anything more than that. That, to me, was a great lesson. Uh, and she, you know, she, she walked the walk. She talked the talk. She did it all. So uh, it wasn't just by example, but uh, you know, she just said, you're going there because it's, it's integrated. And do you remember that as a positive camp experience? Oh, yeah, well, except for the fact that there was a nest of bees under our tent <laughs> and everyone in the tent was stung by bumblebees. But <laughs> other, than least, that, other than that, it was a great experience. It was experience. a great experience. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That's a beautiful story. And it's such a, a great example of, of how parents can, can make an impact on their children in, in terms of how they're going to think about other people and how they're going to walk through life. Um, taking that experience with them because it, it's it's in your DNA. I mean, yeah. you, you know, you can see that, you can feel it, the passion that you have for your fellow human being, regardless of the color of their skin or the, yeah. you know, their faith or whatever. Yeah, I have another story about my mother that she actually told us, um, and this was about anti-Semitism. Mm. And so one time she went to the grocery store, there was a grocery store down the street from us called Lewis and Coker, which was owned by a Jewish family. She goes into the grocery store, she goes up to the cashier, and she makes a comment about the price of milk was high or something. And the cashier said, oh, well, you know, this store is owned by Jews. And my mother said, oh, really? Funny you should say that because I'm Jewish. And of course, the cashier was stumbling all over herself to apologize. But the fact that she spoke up and spoke out and then told us as children that story, I think was a way of her teaching us, you know, you need to speak out against bias and hatred whenever you see it, because that will stop it. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's what the, the No Place for Hate program in the, in the schools is, is teaching our young people. I know the Holocaust Museum has um, uh, many initiatives. Um, don't be a bystander, be an upstander. Got to call it out when you see it, yeah. so that otherwise it just festers and grows, and it and it it continues. Um, if there were one thing that you would want to leave with our audience today, as as we navigate these very difficult, contentious times, what would it be? What you just said. You must call out hate whenever you see it, whenever you hear it. You cannot let it pass, because if you do, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. I'm a docent at the Holocaust Museum, and one of the points that I like to hammer home is that because people didn't speak up enough, the Holocaust was allowed to happen. You said it beautifully. You have to speak up. That's the main thing that people have to understand. And if you're not comfortable speaking up, I understand that. If you think your safety might be in jeopardy, I understand that. But if you feel safe and if you feel comfortable, and there are ways to do it that don't necessarily put the other person on the defensive or on edge, you know, that, those words bother me. Uh, I don't like the sound of that language. Put it on yourself a little bit. Um, there are ways to make people understand. Sometimes it's completely out of ignorance. They don't understand that what they've said is offensive. 
That is so true. Yeah. So often it, it really is that, you know, for the most part, I think a lot of, you know, I think most human beings um, don't want to be offensive to others. And and if if you've grown up in a, in a place where you've not been exposed to people who don't look like you, uh, don't pray like you, don't sound like you, whatever it is, and then you find yourself um, in that situation, you're ignorant because you haven't been exposed, you haven't been taught, and a lot of times your reaction might might really be out of ignorance and not out of spite or malice. But in cases where it's clear that someone is being hateful, you, you, you have to speak up. Right. You have to speak up. You might just open their eyes. Exactly. Exactly. Dina, thank you so much. I learned so much about you all those years that we worked together. You know, when you're working in a newsroom, you don't get to sit down and have these kinds of in-depth conversations. You're in the trenches. You're in the trenches and you're working on deadline. But um, uh, I really appreciate your perspective. And um, ADL is is very fortunate to have you uh, as as one of the faces and voices of the work that you're doing. And for people who want to get involved in the ADL or want to learn more about um, how to fight hate. It's ADL.org. Correct. And our local website is southwest.adl.org. Okay. All right. Dina, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to watch and listen, for giving Dina permission to speak and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. We'll see you next time.